After reciting the Tashahud Ta'awuz and Surah Al-Fatiha, Hazrat Khalid Nasi the fifth Ayyadullah Ta'ala ibn Aziz stated, Previously, accounts regarding the incidents that took place following the Battle of Badr were being mentioned. Through learning about these events, we come to know about the life and character of the Holy Prophet And at the same time, we also learn historical facts. And if one studies history in detail, one is able to identify the erroneous narrations which have portrayed a false image of Islam to others. The opponents of Islam take advantage of these incidents in order to malign Islam. On the other hand, extremist Muslims use this to fulfill their objectives. In any case, from the incidents I will present today, the first is that of Umair bin Wahab, who travelled from Mecca to Medina following the Battle of Badr in order to kill the Holy Prophet and to avenge the defeat of the idolaters. However, the decree of Allah was for something else and he was granted the opportunity to accept Islam. Detailing this, it is recorded that Wahab bin Umair was among the prisoners of Badr who later accepted Islam. Rifa'a bin Rafi imprisoned him. His father, Umair bin Wahab, was one of the chieftains of the Quraysh. who had inflicted great pain upon the Holy Prophet and his companions in Mecca. However, following the Battle of Badr, he became a Muslim. The details are as follows. Prior to becoming a Muslim, Umair and Safwan bin Umayyah were sitting in Mecca one day next to the Hatim. Safwan had not yet accepted Islam. Both of them were discussing the defeat of the Battle of Badr and also spoke about their prominent chiefs who had been killed during the battle. Safwan said, By God, there is no joy to life following the murder of these chiefs. Umair replied, By God, you are right. He added, If I were not indebted to someone which I am currently not able to pay off, and if I were not worried about my wife and children that would be left behind, who would be faced with poverty after my death, I would go to Muhammad and kill him. 
I even have a reason to confront him, since my son has been imprisoned by him. Hearing this, Safwan vowed to take care of Umair's debt and said, Leave your debt to me, I will pay it off. And your wife and children will stay with my wife and children. As long as they are alive, I take responsibility of their care and upbringing. Go and kill Muhammad Hearing this, Umair agreed to go and said to Safwan, Keep our discussion a secret. Safwan promised that he would do so. Following this, Omer went home, took out his sword, sharpened it, dipped it in poison and set out for Makkah and reached Medina. When Omer reached Masjid Nabwi, Hazrat Umar radiallahu anhu was seated in a gathering with some other Muslims and discussing the Battle of Badr. As soon as Umair set his camel down at the doors of Masjid Nabwi, Hazrat Umar radiallahu saw Umair dismounting from his camel with a sword in his hand. As soon as Hazrat Umar saw him, he said, The enemy of God, Umair bin Wahab, has most certainly come here with bad intentions. Following this, Hazrat Umar immediately got up from there, went to the blessed room of the Holy Prophet and said, O Messenger of Allah, sallallahu wasallam. This enemy of God, Umair bin Wahab, has come here with a drawn sword. The Holy Prophet replied, Bring him to me. Do not worry, bring him to me. Hazrat Umar went straight to Umair, firmly grabbed the strap of the sword around the neck of Umair and started walking with him. Hazrat Umar said to the Ansari Muslims present there, Come in with me to the Holy Prophet and sit close to him, for I do not trust him. Thereafter, Hazrat Umar accompanied him to the Holy Prophet When the Holy Prophet saw that Hazrat Umar was coming in this manner, tightly holding Umar's sword belt that was around his neck, he stated, Umar, let him go. He then said, Umar, come close. Umar therefore approached him and greeted him with the custom of the days of ignorance, saying, An'amu sabahan. The Holy Prophet replied, Umar, Islam has gifted us a better manner of greeting than yours, which is the greeting of the dwellers of paradise. Tell me, why have you come? Umair replied, I have come to discuss a prisoner, i.e. his son, who is in your captivity. My request is that you deal kindly in this regard. Looking upon his unsheathed sword, the Holy Prophet asked, Then what is the need for this sword? Umair answered, May God destroy this sword. Have you left us in any worthy state? Did this sword do us any good previously? The Holy Prophet then said, Tell me the truth as to why you have come. He did not believe what he was saying. Umair replied, In all honesty, I have not come for any other purpose than to discuss this prisoner. It is then that the Holy Prophet stated, No. In fact, you were sat one day by the Hatim with Safwan bin Amwaya, speaking about the Quraysh who had been killed at the Battle of Badr and were thrown in a pit. At that time, you said to Safwan that had it not been for your debt and concern for your wife and children, you would have gone to kill Muhammad. Safwan agreed to pay off your debt and take responsibility of your wife and children on the condition that you kill me. Omer immediately retorted, Allah must have informed the Holy Prophet that all of this took place. It is mentioned in this narration that he at once proclaimed, I bear witness that you are the Messenger of Allah. O Messenger of Allah, we used to deny what you received from the heaven 
and the revelation revealed to you. As for this matter, at that time, there was no one present at the Hatim other than Safwan and I, nor did anyone know of our conversation. Therefore, by God, no one other than Allah the Almighty could have informed you of this. All praise belongs to Allah, who has guided us towards Islam and enabled me to follow this path. Omer then recited the Islamic creed. The Holy Prophet said to the companions, Teach your brother about the faith and the Holy Quran and free the prisoner. The companions acted upon these instructions at once. Hazrat Umar then said to the Holy Prophet, O Messenger of Allah, I spent all my time trying to extinguish the light of Allah and vigorously persecuted those who had accepted his religion. I now desire for you to permit me to go to Makkah to call the people there towards Allah and invite them to Islam. Perhaps Allah the Almighty will guide them. If not, then I shall torment them for their idol worship, just as I used to torment you and your companions for accepting Islam. The Holy Prophet thus permitted him to go to Makkah. He did not permit him to go cause them harm, but rather to preach to them. Hence he returned to Makkah and his son Wahab bin Umar also accepted Islam. After Umar departed from Makkah, Safwan began telling the people, I give you the glad tidings of an incident that shall take place very soon that will cause you to forget about the tragedy and woes of the Battle of Badr. And Safwan would inquire from the incoming caravans about Umair. Eventually, one caravan reached Makkah and informed Safwan that Umair had accepted Islam. Safwan swore that he would never speak to him again nor do any good to him. Thereafter, when Umair reached Makkah, he had become a Muslim by then. He did not go directly to Safwan's house. Rather, he went straight to his own home to announce to his family that he had accepted Islam and to invite them towards Islam. When news of this reached Safwan, he said, I knew already why he went to his own home instead of me. He has become an infidel and gone astray. I shall never speak to him from now on, nor shall his family ever derive any benefit from me. The idolaters considered their idolatry to be a religion and the worship of the one God to be misguidance. This is the case nowadays as well. Then, Umair went to Zafwan bin Umayya and proclaimed to him, you are among our chiefs. You know full well what we used to worship, the stones and offer sacrifices to them. Was that truly a religion? I bear witness that there is none worthy of worship except Allah. And Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. However, Safwan did not respond to what Umair said, nor did he pay any attention to him. Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed Sahib has mentioned this incident in Sir Khatamanabin as follows. The disbelievers of Makkah, who until now were fighting on the basis of apparent force and arrogance, now began to incline towards secret conspiracies after facing defeat by the Muslims in an open arena. Hence, the following occurrence, which took place only a few days after Badr, is categorical evidence of this threat. As such, it is written, that a few days after Badr, Umair bin Wahab and Safwan bin Umayyah bin Khalaf, who were influential among the Quraysh, were sitting in the courtyard of the Kaaba, mourning the casualties of Badr, and they were speaking about the other matters that have already been mentioned. They were saying that life is no longer worth living. And Omer even said, I am prepared to put my life in danger 
but the thought of my children and debts restrains me. I also have an excuse to go there because my son is a prisoner there. If I go there, I would kill Muhammad, God forbid. Nonetheless, after this, Safwan agreed to pay his debt and to look after his children. As has been mentioned already, Following this, Hazrat Mirza Bashir Masaib writes, Omer boiled a sword in poison and set out from Makkah. When he reached Medina, Hazrat Umar, who was very intelligent in such matters, became apprehensive. He immediately went to the Holy Prophet and informed him that Omer had come and that he was apprehensive in this regard. The Holy Prophet instructed him to bring Omer. Hazrat Umar went to bring Umar, but before leaving, he told the companions that he was going to bring Umar in order to meet the Holy Prophet. However, he doubted his intentions and that they should go and sit with the Holy Prophet and remain vigilant. After this, Hazrat Umar brought Umar and arrived in the presence of the Holy Prophet. The Holy Prophet kindly asked Umar to sit down next to him and inquired, How have you come, Umar? Umair responded, My son has been made a prisoner at your hand. I have come to obtain his release. The Holy Prophet said, Why then have you hung your sword upon your shoulder? He responded, What do you ask of the sword? Did the swords do us any good at Badr? He tried to respond in a clever manner. The Holy Prophet urged, Tell me the truth as to why you have come. As I have mentioned, he said, I have come to obtain the release of my son. The Holy Prophet said, Well then, in other words, you have not hatched a conspiracy with Zafwan in the courtyard of the Kaaba. The Holy Prophet hinted towards the plot. Omer was thrown aback, but managed to regain himself and said, I have made no such conspiracy. The Holy Prophet said, Did you not conspire to kill me? But remember, God shall not afford you the ability to reach me. Omer went into a state of deep reflection and said, You speak the truth. We did in fact conspire as you have mentioned. It seems, however, as if God is with you, who has informed you of our intentions. For there was no third individual present among us when Safwan and I were discussing this matter. Perhaps Allah brought about this plan of ours in order to make me believe. I believe in you with a sincere heart. The Holy Prophet was pleased of the acceptance of Omer and said to the companions, Now he is your brother. Instruct him in the teachings of Islam and release his prisoner. Therefore, Omer bin Wahhab became a Muslim and it was not long before he progressed distinctly in his faith and sincerity. Ultimately, he became so captivated by the light of truth that he urged the Holy Prophet to permit him to go to Makkah so that he could preach to the people there. The Holy Prophet granted him permission and upon reaching Makkah, he secretly converted many people through his fervent preaching. Day in and day out, Safan waited anxiously to hear the news of the assassination of the Holy Prophet and would tell the Quraysh to prepare for good news. However, when he witnessed this sight, he lost his mind. After the Battle of Badr, some people became Muslim, but in reality they were hypocrites. Among them was Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul. Commenting on verses 9 and 10 of Surah Al-Baqarah, Allama ibn Kathir writes, After the incident of Badr, when Allah the Almighty had granted supremacy to his kalima, honouring Islam and Muslims in the process. Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul, who was the leader of the Banu Khazraj and in the era of ignorance was the leader of both the tribes of the Aus and Khazraj, wished to rule over the people, i.e. they wished to make Abdullah bin Ubay the leader. In one narration, it is mentioned that the people had even made the crown and were in the process of crowning him king when virtue descended, i.e. when the message of Islam reached. 
and people accepted Islam and overlooked him. For this reason, he resented Islam and its followers from the bottom of his heart. When the Battle of Badr took place, he thought to himself that this message is beginning to take root and becoming stronger. Initially he thought that they were very few in number, but when the Muslims won the Battle of Badr, he became worried. Therefore, he seemingly accepted Islam. Following behind him, a group of his associates also accepted Islam. Some were the people of the book. With regards to this, Hazrat Mizza Bashir Masai writes, Until now, many people from the tribes of Aus and Khazraj still stood firm upon polytheism. The victory of Badr resulted in a movement among these people, and upon witnessing this magnificent and extraordinary victory, many people from among them became convinced of the truth of Islam. Thereafter, the element of idol worship began to diminish very rapidly in Medina. However, there were also some in whose hearts this victory of Islam had sparked a fire of rancor and jealousy. Finding it unwise to oppose openly, apparently they accepted Islam, but from the inside they sought to uproot it and join the party of the hypocrites. The most prominent among the latter class of people was Abdullah bin Abay bin Salul, who was a very renowned chieftain of the Khazraj tribe. Due to the arrival of the Holy Prophet to Medina, he had already suffered the shock of having his leadership taken away from him. After Badr, this individual became a Muslim at the outset, but his heart was satiated with malice and enmity towards Islam. He became the leader of hypocrisy and secretly began to hatch a series of conspiracies against Islam and the Holy Prophet. As such, it shall become evident from events which unfolded hereafter that on certain occasions this individual became a means of creating very delicate situations for Islam. This entails a separate and detailed account. Ghazwa Banu Sulaim or Qarqaratul Qudr Just after a few days of returning from the Battle of Badr, the Holy Prophet learned of the news that members of the Banu Sulaim and Banu Ghatfan had gathered at Qarqaratul Qudr and were conspiring to launch an attack on Medina. Qarqaratul Qudr was the name of a spring located in a barren land. This area was situated in Najd on the route between Mecca and Syria and was 96 miles from Medina. Upon receiving this news, the Holy Prophet made the decision to march towards the Banu Sulaim and the Banu Ghatfan and to completely frustrate their evil plans. The Holy Prophet took an army of 300 men and headed towards Qarqaratul Qudr. There are varying opinions with regards to when they departed for this expedition. According to Ibn Ishaq, the Holy Prophet departed for this expedition on the seventh day upon returning from the Battle of Badr in 2 Hijri, at the end of Ramadan, or the beginning of Shawal. In Tabqat by Ibn Sa'd, it is recorded that the expedition of Banu Salam took place on 6th Jamadi al-Ula. According to Waqdi, this expedition took place in the middle of the month of Muharram in 3 Hijri. The narrations of Waqdi, however, are usually weak. This expedition was led by the Holy Prophet himself and the flag of the Muslims was white and held by Hazrat Ali. On this occasion, the Holy Prophet appointed Hazrat Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum as his deputy in Medina. It is also mentioned that on this occasion, Hazrat Sewa bin Urfata Ghifari radiallahu anhu was also appointed as his deputy in Medina. One explanation for both of these narrations is that Hazrat Sewa was appointed as his deputy to deal with the administrative matters, and just as it was the case in previous instances. And Hazrat Abdullah bin Ibn Maktoum was appointed to lead the prayers. In any case, when the Banu Sulaim and the Banu Ghatfan suddenly learnt the news that a 300-strong Muslim army was approaching, 
they became terrified as they were not expecting this. And so they fled from there and took refuge in the mountain tops. When the Holy Prophet ﷺ, along with his army, reached the valley of Qudr, he noticed the footprints of the camels and also a reservoir. However, he did not find a single person from among the enemy. The Holy Prophet dispatched a group of companions towards the elevated area of the valley and he himself proceeded towards the heart of the middle of the valley without any resistance. The Holy Prophet came across some of the shepherds of the tribes and among them was someone called Yasar. The Holy Prophet inquired from him about the people of Sulaim and Ghatfan and he replied, I have no knowledge about them. I simply provide water for the camels. Some of them are given water on the fifth day and some are given water on the fourth day. The local people have ascended to the elevated area of the mountains where the water springs are located. We, however, have remained with the herd of the camels and are not involved with them. Since these people had come for the intention of war and they were part of the provisions, therefore the camels and shepherds were taken captive. The Holy Prophet remained there for three nights and according to another narration, he remained there for ten days. But for however long the Holy Prophet remained there, no one had the courage to challenge the Holy Prophet. And so, without engaging in any battle, the Holy Prophet returned victorious. In one narration it is mentioned that a total of 500 camels were acquired by the Holy Prophet as part of the spoils of war. Since these people had come with the intention of waging a war and had left their provisions and possessions there, therefore, as per the customary practice of the time, it was lawful to take the possessions of their wealth and they were deemed as spoils of war. The Holy Prophet separated one-fifth from it and distributed the remaining 400 camels amongst the Muslims. Each soldier was given two camels and this army comprised of 200 soldiers. Yasar, who was a shepherd, had come in the possession of the Holy Prophet and he subsequently freed him. The Holy Prophet remained outside of Medina for 15 days during this expedition. The details of this incident have been written by Hazrat Mizar Bashir Ahmed Sahib in Sir Khatam al After the migration, the Quraysh of Makkah toured the various tribes of Arabia and turned many of them into deadly enemies of the Muslims. Among these tribes, with respect to strength and number, the most noteworthy were the two tribes residing in the central region of Arabia known as Najd. Their names are the Banu Salaim and the Banu Ghatfan. The Quraysh of Makkah had especially tied these two tribes to themselves and incited them against the Muslims. As such, Sir William Muir writes, The Quraysh now turned their eyes towards this territory, i.e. to Najd, and entered into closer bonds with the tribes inhabiting them. Henceforth, the attitude of the Banu Salaim and the Ghatfan, especially of the former, became actively hostile towards Muhammad, which took on a physical form. Incited by the Quraysh and by the example of Abu Sufyan, they now projected a plundering attack upon Medina. He is an Orientalist, but despite this, he accepted that they all joined forces and wanted to attack Medina. Therefore, however, they were treated in the same manner, and whatever spoils of war was gained was lawful. Nonetheless, Hazrat Mizab Bashir Ahmed Sahib further says, Thus when the Holy Prophet returned from Badr, it had only been a few days since his arrival in Medina when he received news that a large army consisting of the tribes of the Sulaim and Ghatafan were assembling in Qarqat al-Qudr with the intention of attacking Medina. The arrival of this intelligence so promptly after the Battle of Badr demonstrates that when the army of the Quraysh set out from Makkah with the intention of attacking the Muslims, at the very same time the chieftains of the Quraysh must have relayed a message to the tribes of Sulaim and Ghatfan urging them to attack Medina from the opposing front. It is also possible that when Abu Sufyan slipped away and escaped with his caravan by the means of an emissary, he may have urged these tribes to go forth against the Muslims. In any case, 
the Holy Prophet had only just arrived in Medina after becoming free from the Battle of Badr, when the horrific news was received that the tribes of both Sulaim and Ghatfan were about to wage an onslaught against Muslims. Upon receiving this news, as a preemptive measure, the Holy Prophet immediately assembled a force of the companions and set out towards Najd. However, after undertaking an arduous journey of many days, when the Holy Prophet reached the Kirkara, i.e. the desolate plain, of a place known as Al-Qudr, he found that upon receiving news of the imminent arrival of the Muslims, the people of the Banu Sulaim and Banu Ghatfan had taken refuge in the nearby mountains. The Holy Prophet dispatched a detachment of Muslims in search of them and proceeded to the heart of the valley himself, but no trace of them could be found, albeit they were able to find a large herd of camels grazing in the nearby valley, which belonged to them. And according to the laws of warfare, the companions seized it. Thereafter, the Holy Prophet returned to Medina. The shepherd of these camels was a slave named Yasar, who had been taken captive along with the camels. This person was so deeply influenced by the company of the Holy Prophet that after a short period of time he became a Muslim. Although, according to custom, the Holy Prophet freed him as an act of benevolence, he still did not leave the service of the Holy Prophet until his last breath. Regarding the first Eid al-Fitr of Muslims which took place in Shawal to Hijri, it is recorded that in the second year after migration, upon the completion of the month of Ramadan, the Holy Prophet offered the first Eid al-Fitr. The Holy Prophet asked, What is the reality and significance of the two days you celebrated during the era of ignorance? The people living there responded, we celebrated festivals just as is common today. The Holy Prophet said, Allah the Almighty has ordained for you two days better than those festivals. The companions intently asked, What days are those, O Messenger of Allah? The Holy Prophet responded, Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha. During these days, no one should keep a fast. Rather, they should eat, drink and rejoice. On both of these days, the Holy Prophet would go to the site for Eid prayers, which was located towards the eastern part of Medina. On the day of Eid, the Holy Prophet would head to the prayers using one route and would return home from a different route. In this way, a large congregation would form, and this would strike awe into the hearts of the non-Muslims. On one occasion, the Holy Prophet led the Eid prayer in Masjid Nabwi, because on that occasion it rained heavily. Regarding this Eid, Hazrat Mirza Bashir Sahib writes, At the end of Ramadan, after the fasting of Ramadan had been ordained, the Holy Prophet issued the injunction of Sadaqatul Fitr according to divine command. Every Muslim who possessed the capacity to do so was enjoined to contribute one saw of dates, grapes, barley or wheat, etc., per person on behalf of himself, his family and dependents, as charity prior to Eid. This charity was distributed among the poor, needy, orphans and widows, etc., so that this may serve as an expiation for any lapses which may have occurred during the worship of fasting and as a means of aid may be arranged for the poor on the occasion of Eid. As such, according to the command of the Holy Prophet, prior to every Eid, at the end of Ramadan, Sadaqatul Fitr was formally collected from every young and old Muslim man and woman and distributed among the orphans, poor and needy. It was in this very year that Eid al-Fitr began as well. In other words, the Holy Prophet ordered that upon the completion of the month of Ramadan, the Muslims should celebrate Eid on the first of Shawwal. This Eid was in the joy that Allah the Exalted had granted them the ability to offer worship in Ramadan. However, it is immensely fascinating that even for the expression of this joy, the Holy Prophet prescribed a worship. As such, he ordered that on the day of Eid, all the Muslims should congregate in an open space and offer two rakat of Salat. Then after this Salat, the Muslims should of course express their outwardly joy as well, because when the soul experiences joy, it is a right for the body to partake of it as well. In actuality, Allah the Almighty has placed an Eid at the end of all those significant forms of worship which are observed collectively.
The Eid of the Salat is the Friday prayer service, which arrives after the observance of Salat for one week. This has been referred to as the most superior of all the festivals of Eid. Then the Eid of fasting is Eid al-Fitr, which arrives at the close of Ramadan. The Eid of Hajj is Eid al-Adha, which is celebrated on the second day of Hajj. All of these festivals of Eid are a form of worship in themselves. Therefore, the festivals of Eid in Islam possess a wonderful magnificence and substantial light is shed upon the reality of Islam. One receives an opportunity to contemplate as to how Islam wishes to bind every action of the Muslims to the remembrance of Allah. Hence, this is the importance of Eid festivals, wherein we should not merely celebrate, but also remember Allah the Almighty and engage in worship. He continues, I would have to divert from history, otherwise I would discuss how Islam has made the remembrance of God an inherent part of a Muslim's every movement, repose, word and action. This is true to the extent that even insignificant actions in our daily lives are tied to remembering God, whether it be to stand or to sit, to sleep or wake, to eat or drink, to wash and bathe, to change clothes, to wear shoes, to exit or enter your home, to begin or return from a journey, to sell or purchase something, to ascend or descend an incline, to enter or exit a mosque, to meet a friend, to face an enemy, to see a new moon, or to go unto your wife. In short, every action from beginning to end, even upon sneezing or yawning, has been in some way linked to the remembrance of God. Thus, this is the true teachings of Islam, to be mindful of Allah the Almighty at all times and in all matters, which every true Muslim should keep in view. It is no surprise that in such a state, the Arab disbelievers remarked regarding the Holy Prophet, who actually brought this teaching, or according to the disbelievers who conjured it, that he was madly in love with God. In truth, a worldly person cannot consider such sentiments as anything other than madness. However, anyone who has understood truly the reality of their existence knows that this is the very meaning of life. True life is in always remembering God Almighty. During the time between the Battle of Badr and the Battle of Uhud, two incidents have been mentioned which are improbable. Even if one takes a cursory glance at these incidents, it is clear and evident that they have been fabricated. The first incident is the murder of Asma bint Marwan. It is said that she was killed, and in the context to this incident, there is also a mention of Hazrat Umar bin Adi Khitmi, who is a blind companion. Hazrat Umar was the first Muslim among the Banu Khitma tribe. In the second year following the migration, when five nights remained in the month of Ramadan, the Holy Prophet sent Umar bin Adi Khitmi to Asma bint Marwan, a Jewish woman married to Marsad bin Zaid bin Hisan Ansari, who had accepted Islam. It is alleged that the order to kill Asma bin Marwan was given because she maligned Islam. This is what is claimed, that he was sent because she used vulgar language against Islam and that she incited people against the Holy Prophet and would recite derogatory poetry. According to one narration, this woman would throw dirty clothes in the Prophet's mosque. In order to lend support to this tale, it is also mentioned in the narration that through these means, she would cause pain to the Holy Prophet and the Muslims. Hazrat Umair entered her home in the darkness of the night, according to this incident, upon the Holy Prophet's instruction. Her children were sleeping around her, and she was feeding milk to one of her children. Umair checked to see where she was and took the child away from her. He drew his sword to her chest and thrust it into her with full force, piercing through her back. Following this, Umair bin Adi returned to Medina and offered the morning prayer behind the Holy Prophet When the Holy Prophet concluding his prayer and stood up, his eyes found Umair. The Holy Prophet asked him if he had killed Marwan's daughter and he replied in the affirmative, inquiring, will I be charged with the sin of her murder? This is what he asked at the time. On the one hand, it is reported that the Holy Prophet had sent him and on the other hand, he is asking if he would be held accountable for the killing. The Holy Prophet responded by saying an uncommon Arabic proverb, saying, فيها 
meaning even two goats would not quarrel over this matter. That is, the murder of that woman was such an insignificant matter that even an opponent would not object to it. It is recorded that this proverb was never said by anyone other than the Holy Prophet It is only found in this single narration. Nonetheless, following this incident, the Holy Prophet gave Umair the name of Basir, which means the one with sight. Hazrat Umar bin al-Khattab remarked, Observe how this blind man spent his night in the obedience of God. The Holy Prophet responded, Do not call him blind, rather call him Basir. In another narration, the murder of Asma is mentioned in the following manner. When the Holy Prophet decided that Asma bin Marwan should be killed, he asked the people, Is there anyone who will rid us of this woman? Upon this, Umair bin Adi said, I will take the responsibility of completing this task. After this, he went to her at a time when she was selling dates. Pointing to the dates before him, he asked her, Do you have any dates that are better than these? She replied in the affirmative and then went into her home and bent down to pick up some dates. Omer looked to the right and left, then struck her on the head and killed her. It was then that the Holy Prophet stated, If you desire to see a man who helped Allah and his messenger, look to Omer bin Adi. In another narration, it is mentioned that when the Holy Prophet decreed it lawful to kill Asma bin Marwan, Hazrat Umair swore an oath that if Allah the Almighty brought the Holy Prophet safely back to Medina after the Battle of Badr, he would kill Asma. He intended to kill her after returning from the battle. When the Holy Prophet returned to Medina after being victorious at Badr, Hazrat Umair went to Asma's house and killed her to fulfill his oath. According to another narration, when Hazrat Umair returned to his neighborhood after killing Asma bint Marwan, her son was burying his mother with a group of others. Upon citing Umair, they asked him if he had killed her. He replied in the affirmative and then said, Fakiduni jami'an thumalatun darun, meaning, All of you plot against me and give me no respite. I swear by he who has control over my life, even if all of you join together and begin to utter the words this woman did, I will begin to sever all of your necks until either I attain martyrdom or send you to hell. From that day onwards, Islam spread through the Banu Khitma tribe, for until then, those who had accepted Islam from among them would conceal their faith. Allama Suhaili writes that the one to kill Asma was her husband. In Al-Istiyab, in reference to Hazrat Umair, it is written that he also killed his sister because she used to slander the Holy Prophet. However, in Al-Istiyab, the name of Umair's sister is not mentioned. So this is the entire incident which has been narrated. This incident is mentioned in some books of history. However, it is not mentioned in any of the six authentic books of a hadith or any other authentic book of traditions. The reality is that not only did some people in later times include such fictitious and fabricated incidents in their books, but they even started to use them as justifications for the punishment of blasphemy against the Prophet This is exactly what today's clerics do. They take this point and use it as an argument in favor of killing anyone who dishonors the Holy Prophet. Whereas there is no such punishment in the Islamic law for dishonoring the Prophet, nor do such incidents bear any truth. For example, when we critically study this incident, it becomes apparent that firstly this narration is weak on account of its authenticity and Allama al-Bani has rendered this to be a fabricated narration. As such, in his book, Silsilatul Ahadith Da'ifa Wal Madu'a, Alama Nasruddin Albani writes that one of its narrators is Muhammad bin Umar Waqidi, who is a liar and fabricator, and Ibn Muin has declared him to be a weak narrator. When rationally analyzing the events of this narration, there are many questions that arise. For example, how did the companion reach this woman's home on his own despite being blind? 
They may claim that he had visited the path before or had frequently gone there and so he was able to estimate the path along this way. But then how was it that he went alone at night, arrived directly at the door, went inside and found the woman? How did he know that her children were sleeping around her? If one says he felt around for each one of them, but then how could it be that as he was feeling around nobody woke up? How did he also figure out that she was feeding her child? Then, how was it that upon realizing she was being attacked, she did not try to save herself from the blind man or put up a fight? According to the narration, the assailant forcibly removed the child who was being fed. Despite him being blind, the woman who could see did not cry out or resist. Her husband was also sleeping there. Was he not aware of anything? Above all, how did the blind companion discern who was there without calling out? Usually, visually impaired people recognize others by their voice, that it was indeed Asma bint Marwan. In another narration, it is also mentioned, there are even different versions of this tale, that when the woman went inside to get some dates, the companion looked around but did not see anyone. This is something to think about because the companion was blind. How could he have been looking around and how could he say that he looked around and did not see anyone? Did he see the dates that were there in order to be able to say that the dates were not right? Someone could say that he felt them with his hands and that can be accepted, but that still leaves the matter of him looking around. In one narration, it is recorded that when the companion went to the Holy Prophet after killing the woman and informed him about this, he returned to the same place and found the woman's son burying her. This is also something to consider. How is it possible that he had just killed her and in such a short span of time her sons came to bury her and all the matters were tended to in such a short period of time? Aside from this, there has been some research carried out from our perspective that I will mention. There are some other discrepancies that prove this incident to be fictitious and fabricated. Most narrations mention the woman's name being Asma bint Marwan, whereas according to the author of Al-Istiyab, she was not Asma, rather she was Umair's sister, bint Adi. Secondly, in most instances the assailant's name is recorded as Umair bin Adi. However, there are other instances where it is recorded as Amr bin Adi, whereas according to Ibn Duraid, the assailant's name was Gishmir. According to some other narrations, none of these were the assailant's name. Rather, someone from among the woman's own tribe killed her when she was selling dates. According to Ibn Saad, the murder took place in the middle of the night, whereas the Rukhani's narration it is recorded as happening during the day or in the evening, because according to the narration, the target was selling dates at the time. There are also discrepancies regarding how the crime was committed, whether she was strangled, stabbed in the stomach with a dagger, whether she was killed at night, as she slept, or whether, under the pretense of purchasing dates from her, she was followed to her home and then strangled. Then, according to Sirit ibn Hisham, she became a hypocrite when Abu Ufuk was killed. This indicates that she was previously a Muslim and became a hypocrite upon hearing about the killing of Abu Ufuk. If she was a Muslim before this, then how could she have written blasphemous poetry about the Holy Prophet and disrespect the mosque? According to the narration of Waqti, Omer said, O oh Allah, I have taken upon myself a vow for your sake. If I return to Medina with the Holy Prophet, then I will certainly kill her. However, according to Daira Ma'arif Sirat Muhammad Rasulullah, he was blind, due to which he could not partake in the Battle of Badr. It is with reference to this incident that the same author has mentioned Waqti's statement that despite being blind, he used to take part in jihad. They themselves mix up false narrations. If this incident is not fictitious and fabricated, then why have books of history such as Tariq al-Tabari, Tariq ibn Kathir and others not mention it? It has only briefly been mentioned in certain books, such as At-Tabqat, Al-Kubra by Ibn Saad, etc., there are some who have briefly mentioned this incident. However, Waqdi has mentioned it in some detail. 
This incident is not mentioned in books of a hadith, whereas the authors of books of a hadith have included all narrations which have been attributed to the Holy Prophet. Why then has this incident not been included? Then according to this narration, if the Holy Prophet himself sent the companion to kill this woman, then why did the companion go and ask the Holy Prophet whether he would be punished for killing her, as I have mentioned before? If this incident had taken place, then the Jewish people would have surely claimed that the Muslims had broken their treaty by killing Asma bint Marwan and have sought to disturb the peace of Medina. However, historians such as Ar-Raud al-Unuf and Tariq al-Tabari agree that the first conflict between the Muslims and the Jewish people was the expedition of Banu Kainka. Hence, there was no such reaction by the Jewish people. As such, these factors prove this incident to be highly doubtful. In fact, it is completely false. Extremist clerics have given importance to these incidents, thereby defaming the beautiful teachings of Islam. Today, they fabricate similar stories in order to carry out their extremist activities against Ahmadis, and these clerics incite others as well. The second incident is similar to this one. I will mention it in the future, God willing. That is also clearly proven to be false. Alhamdulillah Alhamdulillah Nahmadu wa nastainahu wa nastaghfiruhu wa n'amenu bihi wa natawakkalu alayhi wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyi'ati a'malina من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله ونشهد أن محمدا الله رحمكم الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل واللسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون اذكروا الله يذكركم وَدُوهُ يَسْتَجِبْ لَكُمْ وَلَذِكْرُ اللَّهِ أَكْبَرُ